and welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Monday, September the 9th, 8 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 5 a.m. really super duper early wake-up call on the West Coast and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in. We do appreciate it. Busy weekend this weekend with uh, a lot of things going on, including uh, the U.S. Open in tennis. Yesterday was an incredible match. Uh, I don't think it was it was the all-time best uh, five-set Grand Slam uh, final, but it was up there. It was really good. I'm a big Rafael Nadal fan. I love Rafa. And um, I know that some of the the, uh, idiosyncrasies, let's say, of Rafa may get on some people's nerves in terms of, I don't know if I would call it that he's superstitious, but he definitely is very much a routine guy, goes through a specific way of doing things over and over again, every point, every break. And, um, but that routine has, has led him to a career where he has uh, now won his 19th major one behind Roger Federer. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, he's able to pass him uh, soon. I, I personally, Rafa's my favorite uh, tennis player. And, uh, and, and so I'm rooting for him to do that. But the, the match was was, in, was incredible. Both players played pretty well. Uh, I don't think Rafa played his best uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but they both played well. And Rafa was up two sets, and then um, Medvedev just stormed back um, in the third set, down a break, was able to, to fight his way back and, uh, and win the third set carry that momentum into the fourth set. And then the fifth set, um, it, it looked like we were heading to to an all-time ending. And uh, Nadal was able to, to get a couple breaks, give one of the breaks back, but hold on to, uh, to finish off Medvedev and win the 2019 U.S. Open. And uh, that was, uh, it was a really good theater. For, for a soccer player... Tennis is a great sport to watch, especially uh, when you're watching a match like a, a Rafa Nadal match, because that dude is a is a fighter, like psychologically, mental toughness. Just every time you think you can get him down and beat him down and keep him down, he just keeps fighting. And the great thing about yesterday's match is Medvedev matched him. That's why Medvedev was able to push this into the fifth set. He matched him in the you know resilience category yesterday. Yesterday. And uh, and so for, for that fact alone, it was great to watch. And so if, if you're a young soccer player out there, there's going to be times where you're in a match, things are not going well. That may be because the parents are screaming. It may be because your coach has put you all over the place from a positioning standpoint and you're not comfortable. It's not a place you like to play. Um, and, and you feel like you've just been randomly thrown somewhere on the field. It, it could be the rest referees making bad calls it could be that your team's just not in rhythm maybe you have a substitute coach there's so many factors the weather that could could create issues for you as a soccer player and you have to figure out how to dig deep and process whatever's going on but then be able to get over that to overcome that distraction or that problem whatever is keeping you from playing your best and Rafa Nadal especially in this match yesterday with Medvedev it was such a back and forth affair where both players had times where they were up and then had to battle back Uh, it's just great theater to watch if you are a soccer player because you get to see it in in real time so quick I mean, the momentum can switch on a on a point. Sometimes it switches within the point. And to see the resilience and build that character and, and watch these guys play, I, I, I just think uh, I think it's a good lesson 
for American soccer players um, and and the American you know soccer landscape as well because one of the things that that we see too often uh, in in American soccer is what I would classify as soft or softness. Um, there's there is a lack of resiliency. Uh, a, a lack of mental toughness, um, a lack of self-confidence. There's too much leaning on parents, leaning on others, uh, rather than making things internal, we're always looking for external influences to help us, uh, to, to, to get us over the, the hump or, or to help us get an edge. And, Instead, we, we, we need to really learn from, like a match that you saw last night in the U.S. Open, the tennis final, where you see players just battling it out. We need more of that kind of composure. We used to have that uh, in American soccer on the men's side. You know, you think back to, to, to even recently with like, with guys like Clint Dempsey who had that mental fortitude, that, that toughness about them, tenacity in the way that they played. And, and there were a lot of players from the generations before that, that kind of came up with that, uh, same, same type of mentality. Uh, more recently, we're seeing a lot of players who, you know, everything's been easy. You've been in the development academy. You've been playing matches against other development academies. You're there. You're not really having to fight for anything. Uh, you know, you've been given everything from the time that you were, you know, three or four years old walking out uh, to, to soccer for the first time and you get your juice boxes and your, your you know, your snacks. And, and everything's just been this, you know, I, I don't want to use the word coddling, but it's it's been a very just, you know, recreational, fun, uh, super soft, you know, like experience. And it, it's not been, you know, built on necessarily competition. And we see this even recently with some of U.S. soccer's decisions with the Development Academy to remove even more competition from the uh, the league by taking the, the Development Academy and building it into a tiered system where, you know, MLS academies now are at their own level. So they don't even they don't even have to face local competition to 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 battle it out. Now level one and level two are gonna have to travel more, but they're also not going to be playing locally against rivals and and and, you know, if you are a a non MLS academy, you may be having to get creative to be competitive. Well that creativity, that tenacity in your players can help these MLS development Academy players. Uh, and I, I think we, I think we need to have more of that, not less of that. Um, and, and when I'm watching this match last night, I'm thinking about, you know, American soccer at large at the same time and, 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 and thinking how, when I, when I travel to Europe and I look at a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid and I look at that same 10, 11, 12-year-old kid here in the U.S., the biggest difference is not technical skill. In many cases, uh, technical skill is, is on par or even higher for American players at that age. Physical, they may be physically in better shape, but the area where globally... You see these kids in South America. You see these kids in Central America. You see these kids uh, in Mexico. And then obviously across Europe, where we're starting to see the divergence in the pathway of these 10, 11, 12-year-olds becomes in the mental side. Uh, The intangibles, the things you can't touch and you can't necessarily see or feel unless you're watching it on a field of play, competition, the mental side, tactically knowing where to be, when to be there, what to do when you get there, to know to know why you're doing what you're doing and to know how to do it uh, positionally. Uh, you know, 
when you look at a kid that's in Europe, they're getting that education. It's an immersion in that culture, in in a way of playing and understanding positional play and positioning and, and what your responsibilities are, how to handle yourself in a match. And I'm, I'm not just talking about, hey, if I'm going to play as you know a holding midfielder, what are my responsibilities and my duties? Do I check in between the center backs? Do I stay a level above the center backs? Uh, do I encourage my center backs to split wide and, 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 and drop in or beneath them closer to my goalkeeper? almost like a sweeper. Those are all tactics that, that comes from a coach. Uh, I'm not just talking about that level, even though that level is far superior to what kids are getting educationally here in the U.S., and I see it time and time again in that area. But I'm also talking about the the other aspects of the game, like how to handle the end of a end of a match. You're down. How do you how do you handle that? Is there a sense of urgency getting the ball in quick restarts? It, as a player, if you're up, your team's winning. How do you handle those things in a in a match? If 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 your team fouls and there's no one near the ball for the team that's about to take the free kick. Do you get the ball and, and, and give it to them so they can start replay quicker? Or do you leave the ball alone and go get into position? It doesn't sound like a big deal, but these are parts of a footballing culture, a soccer culture. You know these things. Now, when you encounter people that don't truly have a soccer culture, you'll start to hear comments when they see these things play out. Oh, that, that that's gamesmanship. Oh, they're just wasting time. Oh, they're just, you know, that's rude. They should hand them the ball. That's not understanding what's going on. And, and one of the clearest ways to see this and understand this is, is even at the, the, the youngest levels, right? six, five, seven years old, eight years old, and a kid gets hurt, what do you hear more often than not? Everyone take a knee. That is the American youth sports mantra when someone gets injured. Everyone take a knee. In a true football and culture, you don't take a knee. Watch matches. You're not going to see those players take a knee. Why? Because in the game of football, unless there is a, a heat advisory and, and mandatory water breaks, the only break in the match is at halftime. So when a player gets injured, that is an opportunity for those players to stay on the field but walk to the sideline, grab a quick sip of water, regroup, talk amongst themselves, talk with their coaches, reassess the game plan, figure out a way forward. Maybe things are going great. Let's keep that going. Maybe they're not. Let's make some adjustments. But that that is essentially like a timeout. Now, that is not disrespect to the injured player. That's just a fact. Matter of fact, the, the player that's injured, his own teammates are often doing the same thing. So this is not one of those where the, the, the injured team is at, at a disadvantage. Both sets of players are doing the same thing. That's not, they're not disrespecting the player that's injured. They're just taking that moment to get a breather, get a sip of water, regroup, have a quick talk, make some tactical adjustments or, or clarify some things, and then get ready to restart the game. That's a true footballing culture. Time and time again in American soccer, we don't see that. We see everyone take a knee. Another great one, if you go to American youth soccer matches... And I've got kids, 14 and 8, so, I mean, I'm there quite often. It's it's more frequent than not that after a match, kids don't come over and clap and applaud their sidelines for being there to support them. Instead, the kids go running around the field doing these little high fives in a line. 
That's not footballing culture. And there's a big difference between the two. One is, I'm going to run through the line so that you can, I can high-five you, but that's congratulating me on playing that match. That's you giving me the high-five in those players' minds. You're congratulating me for playing that game. The other is teaching a kid to respect the supporters and appreciate support. One is inward focused, me, 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 me. And the other one is outward focused. Thank you. Thank you. It's about you, 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 you. Thank you. I'm going to walk over with my teammates and thank you for coming out. Thank you for bringing me to practice. Thank you for paying to put me on this team. Thank you. Show gratitude. I would much rather have a team of players that respect their their parents, their family members, their friends, their supporters, gratitude, than me, 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 me. Kids are naturally going to be selfish, and that's okay. I hope that that number nine, when he gets on the ball and he's in front of goal and he has the shot, that he's selfish, that he's not always looking to give it up to someone else. I hope that he's selfish. They're naturally selfish. I mean, we all, if you have kids, you know this. Like, you give them a toy, it's mine. I don't want to share that with you. It's mine. That comes natural. Gratitude has to be taught. And and appreciation has to be taught. Those lessons we need to teach. And soccer clubs can be a part of that education. You see those kind of things around the world. When a, when a match finishes, even if it's the young kids, they're going to come over and clap for their supporters. Thank you. Gratitude. Soccer culture. So last night's U.S. Open was a great chance to learn some of, some of those intangible lessons about mental fortitude, tenacity, fighting, uh, not getting down on yourself, just keep coming back, keep digging deep, internal self-confidence and, and building uh, yourself back up even when you're going through some challenges. And I think in American soccer, there's a lot of lessons we can learn from that. Our sponsor this half hour is T- Ducktig Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Again, that is D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Use promo code D-W-SHOW to get 10% off of your order. Order your notebooks today. It's worth it. And... Uh, if you have some uh, some young soccer players in your house, it's worth it to get some for them. They can watch some matches, take notes. They can take notes of their own matches or practices, draw their own plays. There's a lot of really cool resources there at ducktickbrand.com. We'll be right back after this. Thanks for tuning in this Monday, September the 9th. 
Hope you had a great weekend. We started off the show talking a little bit about some of the lessons from uh, the Nadal Medvedev U.S. Grand Slam men's final last night. Five set thriller back and forth. Uh, boy, that was that was an amazing, uh, amazing match uh, to watch. A lot of lessons you could get out of that thing. Uh, and we were talking about a little bit of that and also looking at some of that about how it translates to um, American soccer, especially youth soccer development. European players physically... And, and even even technically are not necessarily superior to American players. There's a lot of American players that have good touch on the ball, uh, physically can get around the field. It, it, it is the tactical aspects where they just they just don't know. And then the soccer culture, the footballing culture of knowing how to handle situations like injuries, restarts, free kicks, um, end of game management. There's a lot of uh, naivete in, in the way that American players approach those things. And you, you hear comments from the sidelines where parents just, they, they don't know. So when they encounter some of that, what I classify as authentic football and culture, they complain because they don't understand. They complain because they don't understand. They don't know what's really going on and, uh, and going on in front of them. So that is an area where I think, um, you know, it, it is important to learn and be able to find ways to inject that kind of education and footballing culture as well as tactical into American soccer. We need more of it. Um, and, and we need it quick. It's an area where we have been struggling for quite some time. And, uh, and I think we need to do some things to, to correct that and get better in that area. Um, if you don't think that it's an issue, then, um, I'm assuming that you have no idea that that the U.S. men's national team played Mexico Friday night. So there was a match, and, and it was in MetLife Stadium on a temporary field of grass over turf. It's 2019, whatever. Just ridiculous. Setting that aside... The U.S. looked like a U15 team playing against a men's national team. Technically, tactically, in every way. Mexico beat the U.S. 3 0. 3 0. Let me say that again. 3 Zero. And it could have been and should have been worse. You go back and watch that game. Mexico had some clear chances that they, that, that score could have easily been six or seven to zero. Had it not been for for some bad execution in front of goal for Mexico, not converting their chances, uh, that score could have been much worse. Three zero was merciful. It was an embarrassment. After the match, Greg Berhalter in the press conference said that the Gold Cup final against Mexico, which we also lost, and comparing that to this match Friday, he saw progress. That the plan is working. This is what happens... When you have a toxic culture within an organization. We see this in politics. No one that, that follows American politics. No one. Left, right, center. No one looks at American politics and goes, man, this is beautiful. Things are so right. The, the things are, 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 are done so well. I mean, just... The culture of American politics has never been at its best. No, time and time again, every poll states that Americans are tired of the way politics are done in this country. 
and you hear soundbite after soundbite. And this is something that drives me crazy. You get close to an election, you turn on the news and you're like, hey, I want to learn a little bit. So you turn on the cable news and it doesn't matter which outlet. So for anyone out there who thinks that the outlet they watch is better than the other ones, that they all have their skew and their bent and, and, and their ideology. And, and to me, the best thing you can do is watch them all or watch none of them. But if you just, just watch one of them, it, it, it is, it's, a, it, it's like a, a trip into a twilight zone. But when you watch cable news... One of the things that drives me crazy, and this happens all the time, but it's really clear to see right after a debate, is they will go after the debate in what in what do they call the, the spin zone, right? They'll go in and they'll immediately bring on candidates or people from campaigns to interview them about what they thought about the debate. And you'll hear all kinds of just crazy spin, like... Oh, yeah, you know, I, I thought that, you know, they were great and da-da-da. And, like, they may have just, their candidate may have just been, like, butchered. Like, their their campaign may be over, but they have talking points. And you see it on every night on cable news, talking points. Like, the house is on fire. Everyone can see it. But my talking point is to say the house is not on fire. Everything is fantastic. Just stay where you are. Hold the rope. Things are getting better. Like this is the nonsense we see in politics. And this is the nonsense we heard from Greg Berhalter Friday night. Ignore what you're seeing on the field. Ignore the results Ignore the rosters of people I'm bringing in. Ignore all of the work that we're doing. I'm going to tell you right now, the house is on fire, but we're making progress. (laughs) This is the craziness of U.S. soccer, the toxic culture within U.S. soccer. They are so insulated And they are so defensive, so thin-skinned, because they are so insulated. They're not used to criticism. They don't like it. And they would rather just tell you that the house is not on fire, even when it's burning to the ground or is already burnt to the ground. They don't want to admit that. They don't like being wrong. And I get it. No one likes being wrong. But the fact of the matter is, whenever whenever you are in an organization and you're not getting results, then you've got to own them you can't go in front of of reporters and say you know i'm seeing progress no one with an objective eye is looking at the result from friday and going we're making progress Greg, Ber- Greg Berhalter has made as much progress with the U.S. men's national team as Carlos Cordero has as president of U.S. soccer. That's not very much. A lot of talk, a lot of proclamations about committees from Car- Cordero and how task forces and committees are going to save the day. Show me the last time a committee got anything done, anything productive. Committees are where progress goes to die. We don't get things done in committees. We need leadership. We need people to stand up, to be accountable. You finish that match Friday night and you look in the camera and go, it's not good enough. We have to get better. We're not making progress. That's on me. I've got to go back and revisit the players I'm bringing in. The system I'm trying to run. 
maybe maybe it's not the wrong system maybe it's my ability to teach that system to these players maybe it's the players themselves are incapable of playing in that system but whatever the case you have to be accountable you have to look yourself in the mirror and look those those reporters in the face and say look it's not good enough you can't come back with that you cannot come back and 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 with a straight face say we're making progress. Now I was on record in the U.S. Uh, women's quest to win the World Cup in France, and I, I throughout the World Cup and kept saying that if France or if Spain, if the Netherlands, if one of these teams, England, put it together the U.S. were going to be in trouble because I tactically felt like we were nowhere near our best, but that we have such good individual talent that it makes up for our tactical deficiencies. In other words, I feel like if the women's national team was tactically at their best. No one could touch them. That's how good our players are. That if we had a system of play that was more refined, things were cleaned up, that if we eliminated mistakes, that our superior talent combined with a superior system of play, we would not only be winning matches, but more of our matches would look like U.S.-Thailand, even against what we right now classify as good competition, France, Spain, England, etc. Like that, we have such good uh, level of players that as a group, no one in the world can meet can can match them as a group. The depth of talent is just incredible. But tactically, we expose ourselves in my view unnecessarily on the women's side. And I kept saying that through the World Cup. No one was able to do that. No one was able to meet their mental fortitude, their tenacity. Our US women's national team have have the greatest level of mental toughness amongst any nation in the world. You're not going to you're not going to beat them at that right now. Like that group is mentally strong. You're going to have to beat them tactically. Spain frustrated them. Spain was a little unfortunate, a little hard done by in my view in that match. Uh, by the referees and the officials, but the U.S. pulled it out and then and went on to win the World Cup. You're not going to beat the U.S. trying to out-physical them or, or feel like you can just run out your best players and, 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 and play against the U.S. just running out their best players. You're going to have to beat them systematically. It's possible. It's been done in the past. And I think if the U.S. addresses that on the women's side, we can we can continue to be at the top for a while because we have such amazing talent there. On the men's side, we don't have that. We don't have the depth of talent. We don't have a starting 11 that is global standard quality. It's not there. From all, all accounts, people that, that I know that know Giazzi Sardis says, say that he is a great guy. I've personally never spoken to him. I've never talked to him. That's been my read. I've read, read his story. I think it's incredible. He seems like a really good guy, and I think that's awesome. I love hearing stories about great people, good people. The fact is that Giazzi's artist is not global standard quality. 
not only should he not be starting, he shouldn't be in the program. His talent, his quality is not there. It's not on that level. And it's like playing with 10 and a half men on the field. You're playing with one arm tied behind your back. You, you can't look at what we're doing and going, man, we're making progress. We're getting better. That's nonsense. We're not getting better. We're getting worse. And at the same time, the world is getting better. Teams around the world are getting better. Like, we're looking at Mexico as a measuring stick. Mexico is not the measuring stick. I mean, if you want to talk CONCACAF, okay. But Mexico's not the measuring stick. On the men's side, on a global level, Mexico's looking at other programs as a measuring stick. Not themselves, because Mexico's not winning World Cups. They're not making deep runs. Not yet, at least. Mexico's looking around the world. They're looking at the Germanys. They're looking at Spain. They're looking at what England's doing. They're looking at France, the reigning World Cup champions. That's what Mexico's looking at, trying to measure against. They're not trying to measure up against the U.S. or CONCACAF or themselves. You know, I started off the show talking about tenacity. This lesson from the U.S. Open Men's Tennis Championship last night. When you look at our U.S. soccer organization, the federation itself, we are mentally weak. That comes from a lack of leadership. We should not make excuses. We should own things that happen. We shouldn't try to get up in front of the press and tell false stories or just say, that's on me and own it. Even if Greg Berhalter believes, even if he thinks that they're making progress, which by any reasonable measure, I don't see how he even believes that. But let's say he does. That's not the time and place to say that. That is as delusional as what Bruce Arena and Sunil Gulati said right after Trinidad and Tobago in the fall of 2017. You don't get up after getting hammered by your CONCACAF rivals 3 0 and say, we're making progress. That's when you look in the mirror and go, look, tonight's result was unacceptable. It's not good enough. We've got to go and reevaluate things. If you want to juxtapose, like, well, what should we be hearing from our U.S. men's national team manager? Set aside the sports. Just think about leadership. You don't have to like the style. You don't even have to, to like the person. But, but I, want to, I want to contrast, compare and contrast what we heard from Burhalter and what we hear from a coach like Nick Saban, a coach like Dabo Swinney in, in college football. When their teams don't do well, they will look in the camera and tell you it was not good enough. Now, here's a big difference at the lack of leadership we get from the Federation. Because you don't hear this from Cordero. You don't hear it from Burhalter, You don't hear anything from Ernie Stewart. But here's what the, the, the difference in, in leadership and accountability looks like on camera. When things don't go well, they own it. But when things do go well, you hear these same coaches talk about things they can do to be better. 
They don't just take the attaboys and the pats on the back and walk off. They don't go, man, we're getting better. It's great, man. We're getting better. No, they get up in front of the camera. And they're like, you know, it was, it was good, but there were some things I, w- I still weren't happy with. Things I, I want to see get better. Things I, I want us to improve on. Our U.S. Men's National Team program is not going to achieve its potential with a mentality of making excuses or delusional comments after a big loss or a big win. We've got to start to have accountability. We've got to look at the camera. We've got to look ourselves in the mirror and say, this is not acceptable. It is not good enough when we're not playing well. And when we are playing well, we've got to look ourselves in the mirror and look into the camera and say, that was a good result. We still got things we've got to get better. That's the message and the messaging we should be hearing from Greg Berhalter, we should be hearing from Ernie Stewart, and we should be hearing from the Federation. These guys picked Greg Berhalter a long time ago, sat on it, and let an interim manager manage the team for a year while we could have been making progress, and we bring in the one guy that was on the list despite their proclamations that they had a list. There was one guy on that list that mattered. One guy they had already decided was going to get the job. And we've brought him in, and now that things aren't going well, he looks in the mirror and says, I see progress. And the Federation is silent. We've got to have more accountability and leadership from the Federation, from Cordero, from the board, all the way down through Ernie Stewart. We promoted Ernie Stewart from men's GM to sporting director of U.S. soccer. Promoted him. For what? Hiring the one guy on the list that we were going to hire who who has a brother that works at U.S. Soccer as the COO. You get promoted for that? I mean, it'd be one thing if you would have come to, to me and said, look, Ernie Stewart has been the general manager of the women's program. They just won the World Cup. We think that... that it, it's, it's high time to, to put him as a sporting director, bring in someone on the women's side. We have a GM on the men's side. He can kind of oversee the entire project and hopefully interject and inject some of what we're doing right on the women's side into the men's program. But we're going we're gonna to promote him. It'd be one thing if that was the case. But he was the men's GM who got a promotion. We didn't even have a women's GM yet until the recent announcement of Kate Margraf. We didn't even have a men's GM, a women's GM. He's the men's GM. We're not, we're not going anywhere fast. He gets a promotion to sporting director over Kate Margraf, who was brought in as the women's GM. Why not just leave Ernie Stewart as the men's GM, see which one runs a more successful program and promote, promote that one? I mean, if that's what we're going to do, I mean, we just give out jobs and titles from this federation without any sense of accountability, responsibility, or leadership. It's crazy. And you watch this result Friday night, and you're like, what in the world? How is this acceptable? Why do we think propping up a league like Major League Soccer is going to help us? It's not We're getting worse. We're not making progress. We're getting worse. I've seen better execution of playing out of the back with eight-year-olds than our men's national team. And I'm not kidding. Eight-year-olds. So don't tell me it's impossible. Don't tell me it's so difficult to pull off. No, it just means that they're not being trained properly and or... In combination with that, you're bringing in the wrong players. 
I think it's a mix of both. I think that the coaching leadership training from the coaching staff is not good enough. And I don't think they're selecting good enough players. The U.S. men's national team does not look like it's made any progress since Trinidad and Tobago. Everyone persecuted Klinsman. He gets fired. Everyone that, that was an MLS insider, they all celebrate it. Klinsman was trash. And I'm not saying Klinsman was a great manager. What I'm saying is this was the attitude. And since then, where have we gone? Have we gone forward or have we gone backward? Last I checked, we missed a World Cup. We, we did not play well at the Gold Cup. Still managed our way to the final. We get beat by Mexico. We play them again in a fundraiser for, for MLS and Soccer United Marketing, which we're going to get to in just a minute after the break. Friday night in New York at, at MetLife Stadium. Technically New Jersey. And we get drubbed again. We're not making progress. We're going backwards. It's ridiculous. Our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. They provide clean drinking water to people all over the world, and they are changing lives and changing villages. And you can be a part of that story Story at charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Or you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for tuning in this Monday, September the 9th. We had a ugly, ugly defeat Friday night. Mexico just, I mean, they just outplayed us in every way possible. And the untold story that's not not really been talked about a lot second time we've we have faced mexico under tata martino if you don't know that name he was the the manager of newell's old boys uh later went on to to be the manager of barcelona and then then he took the job as the manager of the argentine national team and uh and then atlanta united and he won uh mls cup and uh, walked away and took the mexican national team job that had been rumored for a while but one of the things that was also in that discussion and conversation was the u.s and mexico both had job openings and it was uh, reported that that tata martino because he is not fluent in English was not in serious consideration for the job because they wanted someone that, that spoke English. So we didn't care about someone who, who speaks soccer. And I look, I'm, I don't think that Tata Martino is world-class in coaching. I think he's a, I think he's a good coach. 
I don't think he's anywhere near, you know, Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, Jose Mourinho. I don't think he's anywhere near that level. Uh, but when you look at Tata Martino, you look at his coaching resume, you look at his success, his experience, and you look at our national team, would he have been an upgrade over where we were at the time? Absolutely. If you're going to compare his resume and his experience and his success to Greg Berhalter, it's not even close. You take Tata Martino on the soccer piece 10 times out of 10. Like, Berhalter does not win in any of those categories when it comes to actual soccer. He doesn't. His resume, his experience, his success, none of it matches up to Tata Martino. But Tata is not fluent in English. So I guess we don't really care about the soccer piece as much as we care about speaking English. And Tata doesn't have a brother that works at U.S. Soccer either. So um, so there's that as well. Uh, when, when, when we look at at this whole weekend, one of the other elements that, that kind of was brought back to light uh, this weekend, and I, I talked about it uh, and called it out when I, when I first saw that this friendly was going to be played. And then this weekend, I, I talked about it a little bit more on, on Twitter at Daniel Workman on Twitter. Uh, if you ever want to hit me up, reach out at Daniel Workman. Uh, I, I invite conversation and debate. I love it. So uh, to do that. But uh, I, I posted this weekend that, that this was a fundraiser for Soccer United Marketing. Now, Soccer United Marketing is a company owned by Major League Soccer owner investors. So everyone who invests into Major League Soccer is actually investing into two companies. They are buying ownership rights, a stock percentage, in Major League Soccer as a soccer league and Soccer United Marketing as a marketing and, and rights, like, like digital rights, television rights, uh, broadcasting rights, um, marketing company. So there's two companies owned by the same group of people, two entities. And there's a reason for this. Uh, We could spend a whole show on this and we probably will uh, soon. Uh, But suffice to say that in the early 2000s, Major League Soccer was going under. They were shutting it down. The model didn't work. It doesn't work. And they realized that the model wouldn't work. And they were going to shut it down. And those behind the scenes, including Chuck Blazer, was part of this. Worked to create a secondary vehicle to prop up Major League Soccer. And that vehicle became known as Soccer United Marketing. And the way that it works is every time a match is played between national teams in the U.S., U.S. soccer has granted to Major League Soccer through their secondary company, Soccer United Marketing, the ability to earn revenue. And that revenue is what has propped up Major League Soccer. Now, I have a whole tweet thread on this issue called The Truth About Major League Soccer, MLS and Soccer United Marketing, which I'll often refer to as some. And uh, I originally put this out on July the 19th, 2018. And it, it is a tweet thread that goes through looking at what is Soccer United Marketing, what is Major League Soccer, and how does this whole thing work? Um, In 2002, MLS owners formed Soccer United Marketing to exploit the commercial value of soccer globally. MLS is licensed to to some the exclusive right 
to sell MLS commercial rights, including sponsorship, broadcasting, digital, and consumer product rights. So the, they have they have a they have these two companies. They grant to themselves and their other company the ability to market and broadcast and handle all that for their own league. But it was also set up for other leagues, and we'll get to that in a second. So the way it works is each club operator. So, you know, Arthur Blank buys the the rights to operate Atlanta United. Now, it's technically not a franchise uh, from an ownership pr- perspective. A legal mechanism is not considered a franchise. This is a single entity. So in, in, instead, what he's buying is a share in the company and along with that share, he gets the right to operate a team in a specific geographical location. So the league says, okay, for this fee, you can buy ownership into our league, and we're going to grant you in return the ability to operate a team in Atlanta, which became known as Atlanta United. Okay. So Each club operator owns the same share of Major League Soccer and some. MLS has a uh, minority owner that is not a club operator. So that's that's been a key piece. Now they they have had been working to to eliminate the third party ownership from MLS, and it's not clear whether they were able to do that or not. They went out and tried to, to use a debt instrument, uh, basically get a loan to buy this this uh, minority owner out and then eventually pay off that loan so that the league owned 100% of, of the, uh, the, the owner operators of the league owned 100% of the league. So Don Garber manages the day-to-day affairs of MLS and some. Now keep that in mind. He runs them both. So when we say they're two companies, they, they are technically two companies. He's running them both. They're in the same office. Yes, they're two companies, but they're also one in the same. It, they're legal instruments to do what they want to do and, and do them in the way that they want to do them. So basically... This tweet thread goes through some of the the aspects of how MLS is set up and how Soccer United Marketing is set up. And I'm not going to go through uh, all of the things. You can read that on the tweet thread uh, as well. Um, but one of the points that people miss in all of this and in, in understanding single entity is that when a player plays for MLS – they're paid by MLS. So Michael Bradley is not getting paid by Toronto. He's getting paid by Major League Soccer. His his paycheck comes out of MLS HQ. His check says Major League Soccer. His contract is with Major League Soccer. Not Toronto. So the way that they're set up, I, I give a little breakdown, right? So the way that, that some work, the way that MLS works, and the way that these teams work, they all have a little bit of nuance uh, in, in how they're set up, what access to what revenue they get. Um, you know, So some is focused on broadcast, sponsorship, consumer products, game day revenues. Uh, they, get a, they get a portion uh, of that um, from Major League Soccer, but that is also including other things like CONCACAF, uh, Mexican national team, etc. And you go, wait, wait, what did you just say? Mexican national team? Why is Soccer United Marketing getting a cut of Mexican national team? Because this was the original deal that saved MLS. Sunil Galati was part of that conversation. They created... Soccer United Marketing went to the Mexican Federation and said, start playing your matches. If you go back and look, you, you'll, you'll find this. Mexico 
used to play in the U.S. occasionally, but not all the time for friendlies. Now, official matches that are home matches, they have to play in Mexico. But for friendlies, they would typically play different places. They would play in Mexico. Since the early 2000s, when this deal was struck in in U.S. soccer uh, executives, as well as MLS executives, who in some cases not only were working for, you know, not only in the same room, you had people that were literally wearing both hats. Like Sunil Galati, who was getting a paycheck from Bob Kraft while serving as president of U.S. Soccer. So when you look at at those conversations, what went on was to say, look, start playing here in the U.S. for your friendlies. We'll, we'll give you more money than what you're going to get playing these friendlies in Mexico. And you can tap into your fan base that's here in the U.S. We're going to make a cut on those. You're still going to get more money, but you're, we're going to make a cut on those. And that was the linchpin that saved Major League Soccer. It wasn't the U.S. national team rights. It was the Mexican national team rights whenever they play in the U.S. So they, they created this uh, deal. It's 2003, and it runs through 2022, and, and it has event operations and sponsorships that, that are for Mexico, the Mexican national team, and the event operations have to do with event operations in the U.S., which is why most of Mexico's friendlies are played in the U.S. The most popular national team in America is the Mexican national team. Let me say that again. The most popular national team in America is the Mexican national team. And so Soccer Night and Marketing, i.e. Major League Soccer, is able to survive because of the Mexican national team. Even now, these owners are making money because of those matches. So Friday night, Friday night was a fundraiser for Soccer United Marketing. In other words, it was a fundraiser for Major League Soccer. 40% was paid out to Soccer United Marketing. That was a fundraiser, folks. So whenever you go to a Mexican national team game, whenever you go to a U.S. national team game, understand that that a chunk of that money is going out to Major League Soccer, not to the Federation, not to the Mexican Federation, and not to the U.S. Federation. Now, I'm not saying that we should not be... I'm not saying that we should not be having marketing rights deals with companies. What I am saying is those should be open bidding... And multiple organizations should have the right to bid on those and win those contracts through proper procedures and channels. What I don't like are sweetheart deals done in private, in secret, where people are, are making money without open competition and propping up leagues and giving them preferential treatment over the rest of American soccer. It's one thing to give Major League Soccer this money through this no-bid contract. It's another thing to continually hold the worldview that that Major League Soccer must succeed no matter what. And therefore, it now affects all of our decisions, not just the money we're giving to them or letting them keep for themselves to prop themselves up or or make profits for themselves. But now we're going to go in and change all of our programming so that Major League Soccer gets what they want in that area as well. This is where I have major issues with our federation and those who who continue to perpetuate this bad governance, poor leadership, which provides opportunities like Friday night for Soccer United Marketing and Major League Soccer to hold a fundraiser at MetLife Stadium to line their own pockets. 
Thanks for tuning in today. Um, U.S. plays Uruguay tomorrow night. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. Thanks for tuning in. As always, you can follow me at Daniel Workman, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook.com forward slash WRKMN, or you can watch live at DanielWorkman.com. We'll see everyone again tomorrow.